You're listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to A Book With Legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the president and portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim is for this podcast to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode along with me is our chairman and chief investment officer. I like to call him Dad, Bill Smead. Dad, should we have some fun today? Definitely. We're glad everyone has joined us for this episode. I believe we're going to have a great discussion and think about some new concepts. Mark Mills is joining us to talk about his book, The Bottomless Well, that he published with his co-author Peter Huber in 2006. Mark has published three other books, including his most recent title, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. Mr. Mills is a Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow, a faculty fellow at Northwestern University, and a partner in Montrose Lane, an energy tech venture fund. He began his career as an experimental physicist and a development engineer in microprocessors and fiber optics at the dawn of the semiconductor revolution, earning several patents while working at Bell Northern Research and at RCA's microprocessor factory in New Jersey. Before we introduce Mark, is there anything, Bill, that you're looking forward to in our discussion? Almost everything, Cole. Mark, we're excited to visit with you. Uh, and, and full disclosure, before, before uh, we kind of get you going, uh, to podcast listeners, I just want them to know that Mark and I got the chance to meet at Discovery Institute's COSM conference this last fall, and it would be an understatement uh, to, to say that I'm a bigger fan than I already was from reading this book. Uh, thank you for joining us. Bob, it's, it's great, great to be on, and I have to tell you at the outset, I'm jealous that you have the luxury and the opportunity to uh, be in business with your, with your dad. I mean, I I used to talk to my father about technology early in my career when he was still alive, and uh, he spent his life in radar. He was a 30-year military officer in communications and radar, radio, you know, Battle of Britain, all that stuff. But it was it was a it would have been such a wonderful gift to have been able to continue that. So I'm jealous, and I'm delighted to join both of you. Well, well, don't get his ego too filled up right now, Mark, before we get going. <laughs> Mark, Mark Cole and I can thank my dad was a passionate student of economics and political economy, and that, that probably triggered a lot of our interest. I'll also note we recently visited with your Manhattan Institute colleague, Amity Schles, on her book, The Forgotten Man. We're becoming a bigger fan of the Manhattan Institute by the day. That's, that's uh, great. She's, she's terrific. And uh, I love the title. I'm jealous of good titles. You know, it's really <laughs> good titles matter. And, of course, it captures a lot uh, of what I write about as well. And, and in some respects, the role of technology and energy technology in uh, uplifting man. And I mean that in the generic sense, <laughs> humanity. 
Yeah, maybe three word titles are the secret. So let's let's get it kicked off. Um, you intro your book with seven principles in the preface, and we're going to kind of use that as our discussion um, talking points for the day. And we'll talk about each of these. So first, you write the cost of energy as we consume it has less and less to do with the cost of fuel itself. Explain this to the podcast listeners. Sure, and let me let me also say because you you know you mentioned, but I should also mention my uh, long-standing friend, in fact, the person who I've known longer in my life consecutively other than, other than my wife was Peter Huber, my co-author of The Bottomless Well. Peter died last year, sadly. Nothing to do with the evil COVIDs, but uh, anyway, I miss him. I talked to him um, pretty much every week for the last year of his life. So it was, uh, and I would hold, he couldn't, he had aphasia, couldn't speak, so I had to talk to him. <laughs> so I'd hold, hold up a picture on FaceTime you know, it's how we would talk with of the bottomless well and point at it. Would get a smile from him. Anyway, to answer the, the question, um, how the cost of energy has less and less to do with the price of fuel. We could just think of the two ends of the spectrum as an example: uh, burning wood to make heat uh, is almost entirely dominated by the cost of the wood, and that may be either cost in your labor terms to go cut a tree down or to buy the wood, but once you've done that, you know, between the labor, uh, which is minimal, uh, typically, in terms of the cost, the there's, it's, a, it's the woods, you know, the woods is what determines the cost. Uh, consider a laser beam that can be used to cut steel or much, a lo much lower powers to uh, fix your retina. That's energy. Uh, the cost of a laser beam in energy terms is vastly higher than the cost of the incoherent heat from a uh, wood fire, but the cost of the laser beam's energy is almost entirely dominated by technology and information. It's all about the information in the technology and the machines that make the magic of laser photons possible. So those are the sort of two extremes a way of thinking about it, but that's been the, pro pro the progression of humanity for thousands of years is to add technology and add information, if you like, to the technology to distance ourselves from the raw cost of fuel that nature offers. This is one of my favorite stats, Mark. You wrote in your 2019 piece titled The New Energy Economy, an exercise in magical thinking that the fundamental difference between wind and oil can also be illustrated in terms of individual equipment. For the cost to drill a single shale well, one can build two 500-foot-high, two-megawatt wind turbines. These two wind turbines produce a combined output averaging over the years to the energy equivalent of seven-tenths barrel of oil per hour. The same energy spent on a single shale rig produces 10 barrels of oil per hour, or its energy equivalent in natural gas average over the decades. Is this, is this following on your point of the cost of energy has to do with the equipment? Exactly. I mean, the cost of energy has to do with the equipment and, of course, the kind of thing you're trying to tap. If you're trying to tap something diffuse like the wind or the sun, you need a lot of equipment. So it's equipment dominated, and the more diffuse the energy source, the more dominant the equipment or hardware or material components become. That's exactly right. And, you know, it's not that wind turbines don't work and that you can't produce energy or electricity at reasonable price when the wind is blowing. But that, you know, that brings to a different point about energy. Energy is never useful if it's only available when nature permits it. Does price regulate a lot of this in the long run? I mean, we're economic thinkers, and that's the one thing uh, that in this uh, idea that we, we kind of come back to you know, from your writing 
is isn't price going to kind of dominate where we go in energy? Yeah, sure. It's always one one thing I learned eventually as you know, I spent my early career, as you noted, as a physicist, then then as an engineer. And I used to I, I used to try to say that Mother Nature wins in the sense that the laws of physics, therefore derivatively engineering, dominate what you can do. Uh, that's that's obviously true, right? The humans can't fly without jumping off a cliff. So, but in the end, what I learned uh, over time is that it's always about the money. I mean, it's it's not just a rhetorical line for the uh, for prosecutors. It is always about the money, and and by that. I also mean one has to be honest about the costs. So we can hide costs. Governments are good at that, disguising them, you know, moving, moving money around, calling them subsidies, taxing other people, mandates, things, things that hide costs. But when you look at real costs, the underlying engineering economics of something, that's what determines, in the end, what people will use. Because in the end, at scale, that's all we can afford are things to become cheaper. Otherwise, they don't get used. Your your second point is that waste is virtuous, which I love. According uh, according to the body politic, that seems antithetical. Why is it not? So we were describing um, in English the uh, one of the laws of thermodynamics, <laughs> the second law. So the the virtue of waste is that in order to get higher ordered forms of energy, uh, to convert sunlight into uh, you know, life, motion, to convert sunlight into a, a glucose in a, uh, in a plant, you have to convert one form of energy to another. All conversions of energy are inefficient. All of them therefore involve waste. They all do always. It's a law of the universe. You can't, you can't get a higher form of energy without converting it from a lower form, heat into motion, you know, motion into electricity, electricity into photons, light. Every step wastes energy. The fact that we have to waste energy is got it upside down. It's the fact that we can waste energy to get these higher forms, these more uh, useful, economically productive forms of energy, always in stale waste. Therefore, there's a virtue in the pursuit of this waste. Mark, can you explain for our listeners, um, you talk about Thomas Edison's light bulb, and you talked about how much waste it produced, and yet it was extraordinary. Can, can you explain those numbers? Well, Edison's light bulb, compared to today's light bulbs, was uh, horrifically inefficient. But compared to what people did pre-Edison, everybody knows what was going on. Uh, we harvested tons of whales to get the hundreds of pounds of whale oil to make whale oil, whale oil lamps. And then a Canadian... Uh, the geochemist invented kerosene from oil, and we then harvested tons of coal <laughs> to make oil, to make lamps. But when we took the coal and burned it in Edison's power plant and made electricity and it lit up his bulb, the quantity of tonnage of coal to produce the same amount of light collapsed more than 100-fold. And we've collapsed it 100-fold since then. So Edison put us on the path of it, again, the virtue of waste, because it requires uh, conversion processes from the very basic fuels into very high-ordered, machine-driven, and technology-centric devices to get this new form of illumination, which is, uh, to say it's magical, uh, sort of understates it. Uh, you know, electric light defines as much the modern world as anything else. 
So back to your point about magical, um, you explained really well in your book. And I mean, for the, for the, the non-physicist, the non-scientist, the economic thinker, your point on the second law of thermodynamics, I think, really helped me understand um, you know, the, the science of this. You talk about the temperature differentials that the second law requires. In other words, the amount of energy is actually the differential of temperature contained in a space. Um, can you kind of flesh out that idea? Because for someone trying to think about an engine or anything else that powers energy or uranium, I think it's a very important law to understand. Well, if you think of temperature, in effect, as a height. Right? If you wanted to um, make a, something, roll, you know, a ball roll faster down the, an inclined plane, <laughs> you would, uh, if you started uh, taking it up a height of a few inches versus a few feet, you know the difference. It's, it's obvious as soon as you state it. Temperature in thermodynamics is very similar to that. If I start with a much, much higher temperature, I can get far more power in converting the raw fuel into useful power. That's why we want very high temperature engines. That's why we want very high temperature boilers. In the early days of the steam era, the challenge was to keep raising the temperature and pressure of the boilers, which of course, was difficult, led to explosions until we figured out how to make high-strength steels, you know, pressure relief valves for safety. But the whole chase is to get the higher differentials between the hot and cold side. You can, you can, you can trick Mother Nature, so to speak, by cooling the cold side down. Right? You can make the differential bigger. In, in the inclined plane terms, it's like digging a hole in the ground so the ball has further to go down. But doing that costs energy too. So you have to be very careful that you aren't spending more energy to make the differential than you can get by, by uh, just leaving it alone. Your point on rolling the ball down the hill, uh, you, you talk about this in your pyramids of waste concept in your book. Um, can you explain the pyramids of waste? Well, so that's, this is back to a, ver a version of the virtue of waste. If you start out with a thousand units of raw energy, whether it's wood or coal or sunlight, but what you really want is illumination or motion. As you, as you move down the conversion chains or the supply chain of conversion, if you like, then you, use, you have less energy available on the next step. Let's just say it's an internal combustion engine. Uh, you get 100 units of energy in the form of oil. The, if the engine is 50% efficient, then you'll have now you have 50 units of energy. If I want to convert that, uh, that energy into motion, that I have mechanical gears or an electric motor, let's say it's 50% efficient, then the 50 units is 25. And you just as you keep following that path, you can sort of build a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid is a thing you want, which is moving something or welding something or illuminating something. But the bottom of the pyramid always has a, a bigger base because you have to start with far more material and energy than you need at the final point. It's just, again, locked into the physics of the universe we're in. Hence, you know, so the sort of circular back to where we were, it's the virtue of waste. Because we want those good things. We want the refined product. It sounds like the trail in a teenager's bedroom. Uh, Mark, you have a great chart in your book showing the power density of various technologies. The more power density, the more waste. Isn't this great for economic progress? Well, yeah, you could, you could literally measure economic progress against the increasing density of the things that we do. So the higher, higher power density lets you have airplanes. You can't, you can't get the economic efficiency of air travel without incredibly powerful engines. So the aircraft engines that uh, push planes around at uh, you know, half, you know, 500 miles an hour, just about the speed of sound, 
25 to 50 megawatts, you know, this, this 25 to 50 megawatts of power is astonishing amount of power in something that's the size, you know, of a, of a not even a truck, right? You, you couldn't put that much power into a city a century earlier. So that density gave us the profound economic efficiency of aviation. You could say the same thing about the automobile itself compared to the steam engine, the, tra the you know, the big trains. The density gives you the ability to carry, if you like, cargo, which would be people or things, instead of just carrying the fuel. I, I think your third point is groundbreaking in mainstream circles. You, you say the more efficient our technology, the more energy we consume. Explain, explain this from the standpoint of your book. Well, the, the, the trope that we always get in, certainly in policy circles, but it's also common in, in, in industrial environments, in the punditocracy, is to say we want to improve efficiency to cut energy use. Okay? So simplistically, that's obvious. If I told you that, look, I save, I save energy by replacing a 50-watt bulb with a 5-watt bulb. Yeah, it's true. That's sort of obvious. But what happens in the real world with most things almost all things, there's very few exceptions, is you improve efficiency, you've done the economic obvious, you've made the thing that I want, say, let's say it's light, cheaper. That's what efficiency does. It makes, I have fewer inputs to get the same output. Fewer inputs means I've, I get the same output with less money. Less money means more people can more often use whatever the product is, whether it's heat, food, light, transportation, computers, it doesn't matter what it is. So only time that improving efficiency doesn't increase demand is when you saturate the demand. And sometimes you can saturate things. For example, if there were no more people in the world, if you have the population growth rate slow down, say, you pick a number, if population used to grow at 10%, it grows at 2% now, and if I improve efficiency at 10%, I, I don't increase demand because people can only eat so much food. You can be gluttonous, but you can't, you can't eat an infinite amount of food. So there are some things, there's a small handful of things that are the exception. But for most things, especially, especially in a world where most people are still poor, uh, improving efficiency makes whatever the thing is, the car, the air, air flight, the computer, cheaper, and the rate of consumption for it goes up faster than the rate of efficiency improvement. You point out in your work that no government edict was needed to push us along the power curve from watt to the steam engine to the aeroderivative turbine. Uh, I, Mark, why do people today in, in our day and age believe so much in government policy when we never used it in prior decades when the free market decided all of this? Well, we, you know, governments have over different times tried to implement impose government policy on, on technology. The Soviet Union did that in a more modern example. Uh, so, you know, 1918 thereabouts, 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, that we had 80 years of a Sovietized economy where the government thought it knew more and better than America. America was a much freer economy. Uh, our, I don't think it's most people have any doubt which economy grew more, which citizens benefited more from the advance of technology with a far lighter hand. There, but your question about why is an interesting one. It's, this, it's, a, it's a, a straw man argument when, I, when, when someone says the free market does a better job. Uh, 
a lot of people's response who don't like free markets is you just can't have chaos and randomness let random effects happen governments governments have to have a hand on things um, private markets can't solve all social problems it's all kinds of arguments that get mixed up in it without acknowledging the obvious we we humans created governments for a reason there's a purpose in governance there's a purpose in regulations even there's a there's a utility in regulations the issue is never, are they useful? It's how useful are they? How far do you push them? How much, I mean, how much intrusion does the government take in the market? So, you know, we, we, we can't have a chaos. That's therefore that's why we have government. But the idea that technology, this is gets where people I think get, get, go too far, go to, they go down the Sovietizing pass, the path. The idea that progress in technology can be dictated and managed by smart bureaucrats and smart politicians is where the danger comes in. And what you're referring to is if we ask, I think, the question of where do we get this incredible efflorescence of technology in America the last 80 years, did that come from government saying we need it? No, obviously not. We, we can't. Did government have a role? Sure, it had a role in terms of relatively light hand in taxation, allowing uh, ownership of intellectual property, of you know, regulating commerce in a way that didn't, that didn't encourage predation, all those things that are important. But that wasn't the government saying invent the airplane. The government didn't invent the airplane. Did it have a role in buying airplanes and stimulating some industries? Yeah, sure, sure, it had a role. Of course it has a role, but it wasn't the lead and it wasn't what created the technology. Uh, you have a great chart in your book pointing the growth of the internet and electricity consumption. This is so practical. Why, why do you believe that people think that electricity usage is declining with the growth of the internet? Well, so electricity use in North America has sort of saturated for a decade. We're bouncing around sort of flat. Um, so it's it kind of interesting, it's a thought experiment. If we're being told by some uh, green advocates that uh, electricity use can be pushed down, and that you know we don't, as we improve efficiency, we'll have less and less electricity needed, and so that will allow us to use more expensive electricity, like windmills and solar panels. That's sort of the logic that's being offered. But here, here's the thought experiment: uh, we always get more efficient, and we make things like air conditions and lighter light, light lighting and electric motors and refrigeration all more efficient. The efficiency gains have been incredible, and that's, again, what stimulates the use of those technologies in other poorer countries. But just stick to the United States. The average air conditioner, the average refrigerator, the average uh, light bulb in a home today is roughly 30 to 50 percent better than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, it's an incredible improvement. And yet, electric demand in America didn't drop. The population didn't grow up 50% to level as it had. It went, up, it went up some, but not that much. What happened is new forms of electric demand came along, not least, to your, your point, the Internet itself. I mean, the Internet itself is, is one of the biggest new sources of electric demand for equipment that gets plugged into the grid of anything that has been invented since the light bulb. So using the EIA data, Mark, um, to your point, looking back 10 years, electricity consumption has been flatlined. What are you, using the United States, not necessarily, say, you know, the rest of the world, which has been growing, using the United States, what do you, you know, what do you primarily ascribe that? Is that just dishwashers using electricity more efficiently, therefore we just run them longer? Well, I think uh, 
we have certainly more dishwashers because there's more affluence, so more houses have dishwasher, but not a significant change in the last 20 years. And there's a bigger population with more dishwashers, but that's not significant. And uh, it, it, so the, the fact is, if you look at EIA data and track where the growth in electric demand is, it's in, in all the other non-traditional appliances. So if you look, you know, they track electric heaters, electric lights, dishwashers, and air conditioners. Those big, those are the big, the big uh, grouping of loads that date date back almost a century. And their share of the electric consumption of the average house has been uh, shrinking, while the share of other quote unquote has been rising. The principal thing in other is not you know back massagers and you know electric recliners. It's all the computing equipment and the uh, you know televisions and uh, network equipment that homes have now. They've become a significant source of electric demand. We've hypothesized that to uh, get a place to live, that the millennials will uh, arbitrage land values across this country and, and spread themselves out. How would household growth uh, change uh, electrical consumption here in the United States? Well, we're, al- we're already seeing the data for this, right? It's been accelerated by the great lockdowns and, and the exits of a lot of millennials entering you know, marriage years and having children and also uh, buying houses. I mean, it, it is beyond obvious that the movement to urban, you know, suburban or an ex-urban homes increases energy use. It increases fuel use, increases material use and energy to make the materials in homes. And it increases the electricity use because you've got more people in, in uh, fewer people in more space, rather. You get, you're decreasing the density of habitation for the purpose of comfort and convenience, I might add, and for beauty and all the other metrics that matter in life. Healthy so families. I, yeah, yeah, having families, healthy families, help, healthy spaces. But the, um, the overall trends uh, of efficiency that is making it more efficient to run a house are clearly being offset by the other trend, which is uh, more house per person, right? It's become wealthier. People like to have more space because it's pleasant. They like to have bigger cars, by the way, same trend. And the, the equivalent of this in the automo- automotive world is a longstanding trend that runs counter to what the Greens want, which is that the share of cars that are SUVs globally, not just the United States, uh, has been rising continuously. In fact, last year, globally, it approached 50% of all new car sales were SUVs almost 50%. In the United States, it's well past 50%. We're about, uh, if you count light trucks, you know, pickup trucks, the U.S. is at 75% of all net new vehicle purchases are big vehicles, trucks, light trucks, pickup trucks, or SUVs. We all know why. They're more comfortable. They're perceived of and are safer. Uh, They have more room. There's more conveniences. That's what human beings do when you give them wealth to, to buy the things that they really want. Your fourth point is the competitive advantage in manufacturing is now swinging decisively back towards the United States. Obviously, you're writing this back in 2006. Um, Mark, many would explain that the 2000s had been, you know, were a lost era for manufacturing and workers. Would you still make this same case today looking back? So I updated that claim in a paper for the Manhattan Institute um, so I would still make the claim. I under, what I underestimated in that time, Peter and I underestimated, is the capacity for regulators and politicians to chase manufacturing out of America. Uh, I was maybe more optimistic than I should have been. <laughs> we would, we would uh, not only not get uh, more uh, 
hostile to manufacturing, but would become more, we would embrace it more. If anything that has happened, if there's any silver lining at all to the great lockdowns in the impacts on supply chains, it's a reawakening of the awareness that we should reshore, restore, or help America uh, increase its manufacturing base, uh, not just from semiconductors, but across across the spectrum. Not that we should manufacture everything, but that we should we should improve the resilience and having more here. That that has finally been triggered politically, I think, it, in a very much a bipartisan sense. It's not that everybody wants it, but both sides of the aisle uh, are more attuned to that now, that, that sort of the, the tip of the spear of that is semiconductor fabs again, with a lot of eagerness on both parties to provide incentives to get more semiconductor fabs. My first job, as you pointed out, built, built here in America. That's a good thing, depending on how we go about it. I, I'm a little nervous about how we're going to go about it. But we, we, did, we did increase over the period that I wrote that book with Peter. So we had that data sort of circa 2002 to 2005. And if you looked at the number of regulations and the number of regulators in America, what happened is that we had an, an epic increase, an unprecedented spike in the number of regulations and number of regulators during the Obama administration. Uh, that, that had an effect that's unsurprising. It uh, suppressed the expansion of the manufacturing sector. I think that'll come back now. Uh, in part, I hope at some point we'll have regulate, regulations pulled back, but also because uh, the new technologies of artificial intelligence and machine learning can, to a significant degree, begin to conquer some of the, some of the regulations. They won't conquer all of them, but they'll conquer some of them. You, uh, po- you point out how positively affected farmers have been by energy consumption. Weren't the Luddites going to be killed by technology? Well, you know, the Luddites, <laughs> the Luddites had a point, right? So the, the history, we use the Luddites as an invective about that they, they were opposed to regulation. And so to the extent that we still talk about if you're a Luddite, you're opposed progress, rather, not right, you're opposed progress because progress is good. What the Luddites were worried about is the loss of their specific jobs. And in the earlier, earlier eras, we did not have as uh, an economy and I don't mean this in terms of a policy or regulatory sense. We didn't have a culture that's focused on things like retraining and helping people you know, move. And uh, we did, it was a very, it's a very different cultural time. Today's economy is, is rather radically different. So jobs that are lost to technology are gained elsewhere because we have net economic growth. We have new and different kinds of jobs. And so the Luddites were were right in a sense they lost their specific job to technology progress, but wealth expanded, more jobs were created, and more people were employed as, as, as a consequence of that expansion. What we have today, I guess what I would call today's Luddites are those are not just so much that they're anti-technology, they're, they really want to dictate uh, where the job should be. That's essentially what they want to do. These are the jobs I want to preserve, and these are the jobs that I want to subsidize. And boy, that is, talk about an obvious formula for disaster. Well, Cole and I are hoping to preserve a spot for value managers. <laughs> yeah, su- subsidized. To well, um, so, I, so, think, so, I think you're safe, by the way. Yeah. In the, the, car- the carnage of the markets will now tell you that you don't just buy an ETF and hope it all rides up. Apparently, you have to know how to pick stocks again. What a shock. Yeah. In full disclosure to all podcast listeners, we did not pay Mark to make that statement. So, Mark, let's pivot, let's pivot. Let's pivot one more. Um, let's pivot one more turn on this. Um, you talk about Orwell, uh, and you speak of Orwell's 1984. You know, in this idea of the Luddites, 
Um, and Orwell points out that it was the technology oligarchy. Yeah. We, we, we would argue, Bill and I, and I'm, I, you know, I'd say for our firm, but I, maybe we shouldn't throw our colleagues under the bus, we would argue that based on the world in 2022 with companies like Google, Facebook, and Amazon, Orwell might have actually been right. Would you, would you view it the same way or would you disagree? So I'm going to answer that by uh, hedging my answer because <laughs> you, you are almost a hedge fund, right? So we can talk about hedging. Because, because Orwell was both right and wrong for our times in this sense. He was right that there's always a tendency, uh, a movement to, towards oligarchy and kleptocracy and to statism, the government, the kind of people that go into government who frequently want to control markets and tell people what to do. That That is not diminished. And technology does add power to the oligarchs. It does add power to the status. This, that's always been the case. So it's what Orwell worried about. And he had reason in a, to worry about it. And, and it is true that we have problems today. I mean, it's in, indisputably the case that we have a debate going on to the extent to which uh, these massive platforms are engaging at, whether it's censorship, uh, market suppression of their competition. These are not new human behaviors. So Orwell was talking about his time. It's completely valid in our time. I would say this is what's different today. I think that the uh, class of platforms that we're now talking about, the information ecosystem, has two features that are a little, a little well, more than a little different, profoundly different. One is that the, uh, the old expression, creative destruction, uh, is never more apt than it is now with respect to cloud-centric technologies, internet-related technologies. It's far from clear that Googles of the world and Facebooks of the world can maintain their monopolies or duopolies easily and for as long as previous industries because of the uh, democratizing power of information handed to people, because of the movement of uh, compute and compute power to edges. You know, as George Gilder would talk about, he and I had a brief debate over the to the difference between the centralization of compute power in the cloud and big data centers and the movement to the edges. And my, my view is that both are happening. The edges are becoming more powerful faster right now. By that I mean increasing the amount of computing capabilities you have in your hand or on your desktop increases your ability to increase your own security because security comes in privacy, come from compute power. And as I move more of that into your hands, uh, in your personal control, the, the more I can fight the Orwellian instincts of the world. So I'm, I'm not naive that we have a fight underway uh, and that it's not a trivial fight over the significant market power that these oligarchs have. Same time, I would say, I, I could tell you this anecdotally and both uh, philosophically. Philosophically, the big guys have hard time keeping the talent that changes the future. This has always been true. And it's been true for a very long time. Uh, but certainly, by always, I mean in, in the modern technological era, the last, call it the last half century to century. If you're a really, really aggressively smart individual working in a uh, stultifying large corporation, those people often leave and start new businesses. That's just the nature of innovators and entrepreneurs is what they do. We do know two facts about the current state of play. One is anecdotal, the other is factual. We know anecdotally that there's kind of a hollowing out of talent going on in the Facebooks, Googles, and Amazons of the world. The really talented engineers are starting to, uh, they're leaving. 
they're, they're going to startups, they're going to small companies. The evidence of that statistically is in what, as you, as you well know, are called the unicorn class companies, the private companies that are individually worth more than a billion each. The number of companies like that in the tech space has gone from, well, they were called unicorns because it used to be hard to find. Now, now, now there's probably a thousand unicorns in the, in the United States alone. Well, maybe it's 800 in the United States, a thousand in the world. And most of them, by the way, are in America. That, that is not happening because Amazon or Google or Facebook are creating these unicorns. They're only creating them in the sense that the people who used to work there <laughs> left and starting new companies, which will disrupt them, and, and not in a half century. So I, I, I think there's a, uh, we'll call it a centrifugal force, if you like to use a physics term, going on of, of people spinning out of those, uh, those giant central hubs. The easy way for us to back you up on that is we have a chart that shows who the 10 largest corporations were at the end of each decade back to 1980, and, and it's constantly changing. And why wouldn't it change again? Why, would, why do people think Amazon will be? Now, here's, here's what will be the case. IBM still exists. It's one of the few um, tech giants, if you like, that's still a relatively a giant that has a century old. But there's always an exception, right? Amazon might exist for a century, like Sears and Roebuck did. Quite possible. But, that, but most of them will disappear. That was the oligarch in 1969. To your point, was IBM? They were the they were the Death Star. Yeah. They well, they they had 70 percent market share in computing at one point. 70 percent. Your fifth point is that human demand for energy is insatiable. Many are making the opposite case. How would you rebut that? Wow. Yeah. The opposite case. Uh, well, first the rebuttal is there's no evidence in history that's been the case. So, some, sometimes history matters. So there. So those who are saying that there's a saturation in energy demand are essentially saying there's a saturation in in the invention of new technologies and new services. That's what they're saying. There, it is correct to think that there may be a saturation in the population of humanity. We seem to be on that track, although. I would say it's a separate discussion. The jury is still out on that. I mean, predicting things for centuries is tough. But certainly population growth rates have slowed globally. So we, we do know that there's a slowdown already happening, coming in the West. So you could say, well, that will mean we'll saturate energy demands. Well, okay. Uh, Let's let just do a thought experiment. Did, did anybody predict the energy demands from computing? Global computing now uses much electricity, twice as much electricity as a country of Japan. Before the advent of computing, there was no demand for electricity for computing. Before the invention of airplanes, there was no nine million barrel per day of oil demand to fly people because there were no airplanes. So what the uh, what I call the new normalists believe is the new normal is, is no more new inventions. So I'll, I'll name three classes of inventions that all require energy and require disproportionate amounts of energy per unit of service to humanity. And they're all domains for which there's no broad commercial product. One would be bioelectronics. These are electronics that can be implanted or consumed that will help the healthcare industry in ways that are as profound as silicon electronics helped communications. The other would be the often talked about but now viable use of uh, autonomous drones for freight and travel and eventually for personal air travel. There was essentially nothing going on except proto-commercial proto, uh, products. And of course, my favorite, which is the um, 
the longstanding, you know, anthropomorphic robot that um, finally Elon Musk is, is talking about seriously, which is amazing. Uh, I think useful, uh, they really should be called cobots. It's a term created by two Northwestern University professors, Colgate and his colleague. Collaborative robots, robots that work with humans. One of the most valuable ways, important ways you can make a robot work with a human is to have the robot able to work in the human environment without changing the environment to the human. You change the robot to work where the human is. In other words, robots that have proliferated in manufacturing are typically locked behind cages, right? So, because they, they they would injure people whipping around. That's good for certain manufacturing, not very useful. Robots that are anthropomorphic and function in our environment are no longer crazy to think about. I write about it in my book, of course. All three of those, if, as, they, as they become real, real things, real commercial products, entail an incredible increase in the energy intensity of manufacturing the underlying components to make them. And we're manufacturing none of them today. All three of them, using them, will require energy to operate them. None of them use energy today, just like there was no energy used to fly airplanes a century ago, more or less. So the idea that we finished inventing things, I mean, let's just do space travel where everybody thinks there's going to be consumer enjoyment of being in near-Earth orbit. I think that's a lot further away than people realize, but never mind when it's going to happen. You know, not to date, but to do that, you know, there's no change in the fact that the laws of physics mean you're using a lot of energy to fight gravity. And that if we have a wealthier society having more people going into Earth orbit for fun, it's not so crazy. It's probably more than a century away, but I don't think it's as soon as as Jeff Bezos thinks, but that's going to consume energy that's not on the on the rolls today. You could go you could go through a long list of things that that we can imagine, and then you have the proverbial unknown unknowns to use an old you know Rumsfeld line, and we don't know what innovators will invent in the next half century, or and then those new inventions creating new products, new services. Let me add one other one just to the list of products and services that consume energy. How about really useful Zoom calls through holography? Not Zoom, but any kind of teleconferencing through truly useful three-dimensional holography. Anytime you increase the number of visual pixels you have to uh, create an image, holography is three-dimensional three images, it consumes more energy. But the energy and pixel and data increase to go from planar to volumetric, as you know, is nonlinear. And that will consume more energy. There's just, there is... I, 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 you don't have to have a good imagination to imagine there's a lot more things to be invented. They will all consume energy. And the idea that the things that we already use will consume nothing in the future is just silly. I, I can make cars twice as efficient, which is what will happen. Automobiles will become twice as efficient because they can, and they will be. Uh, that will mean there'll be more than twice as many cars in the future because there's still countries where there are billions of people with no car. So we'll increase the number of cars because they're more efficient and cheaper to use and operate. And then we'll use more energy for other things like, you know, the proverbial flying car one day, which will happen. It's not, it's not crazy that it could happen. It's just very difficult to do. But that's like saying it'd be very difficult to build a 747 if I'm talking in the year 1922. I love your six point. As many people back in 2008 we're making, um, you know, this idea of peak oil and we're running out of oil, um, which is kind of funny. And this is, I mean, if, if someone goes and says, well, Cole, why should you read Mark's book? I'd say, well, because he was right. We're not running out of fuel, you know, contrary to popular belief back then. 
Um, ex- explain how you got to this. So when the book came out, it was pretty much the peak year for the theory that the world had reached peak oil supply, that there was we were just running out of oil on the planet, and we had to change uh, how we would fuel the world. That peak oil thesis began, well, roughly 10 years after the oil age began, 150 years ago. <laughs> They've been predicting peak oil for a very long time. Well, Peter, Peter and I looked, just looked at the geophysics of the known existence of hydrocarbons in the top of the Earth's crust that we have some decent knowledge about. And the only conclusion you can come to is that for all practical purposes, the physical supply of hydrocarbons is infinite for all practical purposes. The determining factor of whether you can uh, provide oil and gas to society at a price people will pay is technology. So you just have to ask yourself, are te- is technology getting better and can, can we access that oil? Like shale oil be the obvious one, or deep water oil, which wasn't available to the world uh, more than, you know, uh, other than beginning in the last several decades, starting, starting 50 years ago, accelerating the last several decades. So the idea that we have a peak supply, again, was the, uh, more or less an idea of peak technology, which we, we, we thought was silly and silly in the short term. Now today, we don't, you know, we don't have people saying we have peak oil, more, more or less. There are some who believe it still. Mostly it's we have, we, we, should, we should enforce peak demand because there's too much oil available. <laughs> we should stop people from burning it and for all the reasons that you, you guys full well know. Uh, I feel your seventh point is very timely based on what's going on in energy prices. You wrote, America's relentless pursuit of high-grade energy does not add chaos to the global environment. It restores order. How do you look at this when you, how did you look at this when you wrote the book in 06 versus now? Has anything changed? Um, well, two things have changed. Uh, the physics and the engineering and our basic point hasn't changed. But the United States did arrive at the point uh, we expected and, and written about both before and after the book that we could and we did we export oil. That was at a time we thought we would be importing oil and natural gas and running out of it. That the U.S. would change its geopolitical position by becoming a, uh, an, uh, an energy force to reckon with as it was at the early age of the you know, oil era. Uh, we, I guess we, neither of us then th- believed that we would get to the level of, and I can't think of any other word that would describe it, of insanity to believe that we should uh, aggressively discourage uh, the production and use of oil and gas, that, that the kind of monomaniacal belief that we can manage a, 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 the exit from use of hydrocarbons globally uh, and use wind and solar instead. And that would, the Green Movement was in full swing then, but it, it was hard to imagine it would become as powerful as it has become. That won't change the facts. The facts are what they are. Oil and gas and coal demands are all up, despite the incredible amount of money being spent to avoid that happening. So the philo- philosophical point's unchanged, but the cost or consequence of accommodating misguided policies is is something that uh, is always in play, but it's certainly bigger than I would have expected thinking about this you know, a decade ago. Yeah, we, we, we call that uh, ESG Kool-Aid is what we call that. Uh, you made a wonderful point on forest being replenished. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, and, you know, I, I looked at the way that Mount St. Helens blowing up, wiped out a bunch of forest. Uh, explain this wonderful story that's transpired in the forests of America from when pilgrims hit Plymouth Rock 
to today. Yeah, you know, it's fine. I grew up in Canada, so I got involved in the, the forest debates there and the wood debates and also got involved in the energy issues when people were saying, you remember there was an old expression when the anti-nuclear activists were active, first began their their opposition, that it was split wood, not atoms, right, because we had... And then, then you had the movement that saying we're, we have to save the trees, save the forests. So when Peter and I wrote that, that was also contemporaneous with the, the peak push to go to recycling, where the recycling was animated to save a tree, right? That was the whole thing. Everybody talked and babbled about saving trees, got to save a tree. And I remember doing research earlier before the book, and we wrote the book, looking at data. We have lots of data on forests in North America. We've been keeping data about forests well, pretty much since the dawn of the, the, the the settlement of these, this, the North American continent. We have a lot of data on forests. And it was very clear that the forests had, uh, after we stopped you know, s- stripping them for fuel wood <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, and stopped having to increase uh, arable land, we, you know, we reduced the amount of arable land we had to use by using energy for fertilizers, as you know, and energy for tractors. So the forests were obviously expanding, and the magnitude of the forest cover of North America and when we wrote the book, and still today, is greater than the forest cover when the pilgrims arrived, because the the, the then Native Americans, the Indians, uh, were burning forests for both to run to run animals, uh, and also for fertilizer because it fertilizes the ground for, for growing crops. It's like a sort of a a natural. The ash is kind of like a natural fertilizer. Mark, I feel like I feel like that's an, a mic drop event, though. I mean, to say that a Western democracy has turned back the hands of time through the capital that they have created and the ideals they espouse, no one says that. No, they, they, they don't. And of course, everything about uh, both human nature and nature itself, improvements that we've seen in terms of uh, preservation of land, uh, improvement of quality of life, improvement of the ability to protect species in beautiful, beautiful landscapes, all this has come from capital markets creating wealth allowing people the luxury to be able to afford that, to afford the beauty. Beauty beauty is expensive in life. Beauty is expensive, and it just is. And beauty costs energy, and beauty costs money. And what capital does, what technology does, is it does what Joel Moikier, the economist at Northwestern, who's, in my view, a Nobel, you know, Nobel-worthy economist. He's not a Nobelist, but he should be. He wrote a book called The Lever of Riches, one of his great books, and he pointed out that the the technology is one of the most potent forces in all of history, and it creates the only thing in economics that you could call a free lunch. I think Cole's trying to get at, uh, you think the people that manage the forests have done a little bit better job than the Washington public power <laughs> supply system. <laughs> well, I think, I think the, the people that manage forests, actually the Forest Service is one of the older services like agriculture. When left alone, they've done a pretty damn fine job. But the forests have, have grown because we haven't had to cut them down in part and also because the world has more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that's been very good for forests. It's, it's led to reforestation of a lot of the planet. So to this carbon capture idea that you're touching on, because ultimately that's what our trees do. They capture carbon. Yeah, they, um, they, eat, they eat carbon. They eat carbon, so it's a wonderful thing, uh, which is why why both work with uh, other forms of energy. But you point out in your book a very interesting fact, and I and you you kind of put it out as a mystery. Um, you point out that the carbon dioxide concentrations are actually lower than what we think they should be. 
Um, and and I've never heard someone say, oh, by the way, did you know that it's not as bad as we think it should be? Um, what Have you kind of, from the book being written in 06 to today, has, has any of that been explained? You know, we, we, have, we have a chapter, as you know, in our 06 book on the carbon dioxide climate debate. And it was in full swing then, as you well know. It's become much more hypertrophied and hyperbolic in the, in the years since. Uh, the facts haven't changed that we wrote about then. Uh, in fact, nothing has changed except more hyperbole. What we, we do know are some sort of broad geophysical realities. We do know that carbon dioxide is the nutrient, not just for trees, but for all plant life. It's what plants eat. It's how plants grow. Without carbon dioxide, there'd be no plants, and no, no plants means no life because everything, everything that we eat is derivative from you know, plants. Whether we eat meat or not, or just you're a, you may be a vegetarian, but you're, then you don't have to eat meat, but you're eating plants. The, there is a starvation level for carbon dioxide for plants. It's somewhere just below 300 parts per million in the atmosphere. So the, the planet was approaching carbon dioxide starvation uh, a century ago. And the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have been rising since then, infamously so. <laughs> and human beings have been adding to that, equally infamously so. Uh, the extent to which humans are the real reason for the uh, increase or its other natural forces is the big debate. But both are going on. But we, we avoided, uh, f- by luck or whatever, uh, starvation. We know, by the way, that carbon dioxide is plant nutrient, not just because in, in the... <laughs> It's, an, it's a biological fact. But greenhouse operators uh, inject extra carbon dioxide into greenhouses to promote growth. In fact, levels of carbon dioxide in greenhouses may be elevated to as high as 1,000 parts per million, which is more than double the natural level, uh, which is not harmful to human beings to breathe or anything like that, but it does dramatically improve growth rates because plants like and need the food. It's food for them, that, that and the water and some of the minerals. So... It's these kinds of things that I've just said, and saying it the way I just said it would get me. And I think, even, in fact, I try not to look at what people say about me online. Probably have me labeled as a quote a denier, as you know, uh, of the climate apocalypse. Uh, you can't talk in terms of the science of climate change and not get labeled denier unless you're hyperbolic, hair on fire, and say we have to stop burning hydrocarbons. If, if you talk about carbon dioxide being a nutrient, in fact, a friend of mine who said that was, has been, you know, he's a, a physicist who knows more about carbon dioxide than anybody else probably on the planet. This is Will Happer, you know, emeritus professor at Princeton. He, he actually saw, I saw articles in the New York Times saying, saying that the idea that it was a nutrient was, quote, nutty. Now this, you know, it's one thing for the reporter to decide the person's nutty, I guess. They're allowed to say those things. But the, the, to, act, to actually say that the biological fact that CO2 is a, a nutrient, that that fact is nutty, just tells you where we are in the insanity of that particular debate. Solar power in New York will never power New York City. Uh, the, uh, there's there's not, not enough square feet of surface. So what does that mean for the USA at large? Well, the United States is, uh, and, and like the rest of the Western world, is doing an experiment, some of the results of which we are already seeing, especially in Europe, 
is that the attempt to replace oil, gas, and coal with essentially just wind and solar, that's essentially the goal, uh, if not entirely, mostly, uh, will not only increase energy costs radically, but degrade energy reliability radically. And in fact, as a practical matter, and it sounds mildly hyperbolic for me to say it, but I, I think it's probably fair to say it's actually impossible. And by I mean literally impossible without uh, profoundly impoverishing and ultimately killing a lot of people. People will die literally because there won't be food or fuel if you tried to make the kind of conversions that are being proposed, uh, these sort of idealized, hand-waving, simplistic models, because it just looks easy to build a big wind turbine, and they're pretty impressive machines, and not have to, say, burn natural gas in a gas turbine without asking all the difficult and not that hard to answer questions about how much does it really cost, back to your point made earlier, what are the real costs, and not just the cost to build the wind turbine, but provide the electricity when and where I need it. It's obviously important. It's, as soon as you state it, it's beyond obvious. But those are what the real costs are in a society, building a civilization. There's, all, there's always been the challenge of providing food and fuel when society needs it, not when it happens to be available. And that's... That's as ancient as the Egyptian storage of grains. Yeah, so the ultimate pear trade would be to put coal-fired plants in California next to the cannabis farms. <laughs> That's right. Cannabis grow lights use, uh, uh, right now in Colorado, I believe they're using more electricity than the entire internet in Colorado. Nationally, grow lights for growing cannabis probably rival a, a significant share of what data centers consume for electricity in North America. And then people are more hungry. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> uh, do you feel vindicated in your idea of order versus chaos as we all watch UK electricity prices skyrocket? <laughs> Le less order has translated to higher prices, has it not? Yeah, well, that's exactly It's less ordered energy, and it's translated into not only higher prices but more hardships. I mean, if you read what's going on in energy poverty all across the UK and, and Europe, uh, it is tragic and it's terrible. And, you know, a chaos is not a good thing. It's, this is what humans have been trying to fight. And you fight it with order, and order always costs energy, and it, it requires capital and requires new technologies. And, frankly, maybe the most rare commodity of all, it requires common sense. Uh, as, as I alluded to earlier, Mark, I kind of find myself as one of your bigger fanboys out there. Um, I feel like I could go on talking for hours, as I'm sure Bill could, um, this has been so much fun. Is there anything that we haven't discussed yeah, in this book um, that, that you'd like to mention to the listeners? Well, you know, it's, it's, as you know, the book, The Bottom of Swell, is fundamentally an optimistic book. So we focus a lot. You, we've all, you know, the three of us have talked a lot about what can't be done, right? which is for obvious reasons. That's how sort of how debates go on. Most of our book then and my new book now is not about what can't be done, but what can be done. And what can be done is so exciting, and I'm such a, and it makes me a fundamental optimist, not only about energy, but about technology broadly. The problem is a sort of a misdirection when I when I tell people that you, you're not going to run the world on windmills; this can't be done. Then you're labeled as a pessimist or a denialist, or you don't understand technology. Well, no, I, I just I understand that there's a lot of other things going on other than that. It's a so I, I, I worry a bit as we have these discussions that at least I come across as a 
a curmudgeon, a naysayer about what can can or can't be done. There will be lots more Teslas in the future, lots more electric cars, lots more solar panels, lots more windmills. And that's, in my view, that's a good thing because they're going to get cheaper and better and they have very significant niche applications. But they're not going to replace the other stuff. It's kind of, the analogy that I like to use is saying that when the car got invented, um, we didn't eliminate use of trains. We actually use trains more now than we did then. You know, they have different utility functions and provide different economic value. Both expanded. When the airplane came along, we didn't stop using ships. We used ships less for carrying people, except for entertainment, and more for carrying goods. Far more ship tonnage now than, than when the airplane was invented, but there's far more travel in airplanes. That's how technology works. You get, you get both. And in energy terms, to use the phrase uh, created by a, a, a former Democratic president, he said it for political advantage, but he was actually right when he said we really are going to need all of the above in the future. You remember that line from President Obama. He he was right, and that's where the world will go in the future. We're going we're gonna to have more windmills and electric cars. We'll also have more oil and more gas and probably a lot more coal for a long time. The world, I'll end on the one last energy factoid. The, the world still, in fact, the United States, let's just stick with the United States. The United States still gets more energy from burning wood than from solar panels as of 2022. Very, very, very interesting, Mark. Um, and, and to your point, uh, I think what I got out of your book, you know, technology is what's going to project energy consumption into the future. It's not going to inhibit it. And I think that's something I had to really kind of figure out myself. And your book did a wonderful job of helping me get along in that. Um, this has been a, a, a great conversation and discussion. Um, I have a copy of your newest book, The Cloud Revolution, how the convergence of new technologies will unleash the next economic boom and a roaring 2020s. Yet, like you pointed out earlier, sounds like you're yet again, Mark, the optimist. Um, That's one of my next reads. Um, Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you both for having me on. And uh, good luck with the the picking. This This is stock pickers mecca coming up because there's so much going on. It's exciting and so much chaos. It's what a gift. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it's a blessing. And, and I also want to thank my dad, Bill Smead, for hosting with me today. Uh, Mark's book, The Bottomless Well, is a wonder le- wonderful lesson in science and history to understand how we arrived in our consumption of energy and how that has only been increased with technology. Uh, all of our listeners should go buy his book. Um, for our listeners, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, email podcast at smeadcap.com. That's podcast at smeadcap.com. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. We look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor.